This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. After three days of intense negotiations between EU member states and the European Parliament, lawmakers reached an agreement on Friday on a framework to regulate artificial intelligence. It is the first text of its kind in the world, and the political agreement is expected to promote innovation in Europe while limiting the potential abuses of these advanced technologies. The regulation of artificial intelligence has emerged as the issue over the past year as the explosive growth of ChatGPT and other generative AI services have sparked legislation, lawsuits, and national consultations. The European Union has been working to assume the poll position when it comes to AI regulation. Late last December, a deal was struck on the EU AI Act, which is heralded as the first of its kind and a model for Canadian AI regulation. Luca Bertuzzi is a Brussels-based tech journalist who was widely regarded as the leading source of information and analysis about the ongoing negotiations involving the EU AI Act. Luca joins me on the podcast to explain the European process, the ongoing opposition that comes from some countries, and the future steps for AI regulation in Europe. Luca, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad you came. You've come on. You, you, I think, were unquestionably the the leading source of information for many of the legislative ups and downs that took place with the EU AI Act, and and so thank you for that. As as you may know, Canada has its own artificial intelligence bill, and it has said that it wants to largely follow the EU model. And so given that it's that approach, I think it's important, certainly in Canada, to better understand what that model is. And, and of course, I think people around the world have been looking to the EU and the so-called Brussels effect at times on some of these digital policies to, to see what's coming out and, and where, where, where some of these regulations may be headed in the future. Why don't we start with a bit of a background on the EU AI Act? Of course, the regulation of AI has been capturing a lot of attention right now, but can you take us back a little bit? When was this introduced and, and what sort of process led up to the, the negotiations that concluded towards the end of last year? Right. So, and I, indeed, I, I know the Canadian law. I've been to uh, an event organized by the Spanish presidency in November, and there were quite a few folks from, from Canada. Um, uh, lots of interest on the AI uh, from there. Um, so I've been following the AI Act from the start uh, when it was first proposed in April uh, 2021. Uh, I can tell you then uh, the um, overall attitude was very different. Uh, people were saying, you know, this is uh, new technology. Why do you want to regulate? Doesn't make sense. And then after uh, ChatGPT uh, was publicly launched and, uh, you know, generative AI exploded, uh, the mood was, uh, now it's too late. This is moving too fast. How are you going to catch up? So, you know, I think uh, we can say a lot of uh, bad things about the EU, but it, it has shown a lot of vision. Uh, in terms of what will be the future uh, of uh, technology and what uh, should be regulated. Um, 
just to give you an idea, this uh, legislation follows a rather traditional approach uh, because it's based on product safety legislation. Um, the, the deal here is that the EU is basically saying we want to use this technology, uh, but at our conditions. So, for example, uh, if there is uh, an AI application that uh, we consider is not acceptable in our society, we, we are just going to ban it. And that's what they are doing for uh, um, social scoring, this practice that of social control that is uh, common in China, other types of technique like uh, manipulating uh, people with disabilities um, and so on. Uh, so uh, that is one of the big uh, categories that is identified in the AI Act. Uh, the other big category are um, AI uh, systems that pose a significant risk to uh, people's fundamental rights or health and safety. So, um, for example, if uh, you use an AI to select uh, potential employees, uh, you want to make sure, uh, you know, that you are not discriminating against people. Uh, people of color, for example, because the AI systems is trained on a biased uh, database. Uh, you know, if you uh, use uh, AI to manage critical infrastructure, you want to be extra sure that, you know, the, the, the system is robust uh, and flawless. So, you know, it's quite basic things. Um, if you think about it, uh, and and this uh, idea is to provide extra safety uh, for uh, these sort of technologies. Then the third category that uh, joined uh, later in the game, because as I said, ChatGPT was not a thing uh, when the AI Act was first conceived, is foundation models um, and general purpose AI systems like ChatGPT. Um, here it was a bit of a contentious point on how to regulate something that is really uh, fast moving. Um, the, 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 the most promising part of artificial intelligence as far as uh, we we know now, um, but at the end, it appeared uh, politically unfeasible not to regulate foundation models simply because, you know, these are very powerful uh, types of AI and uh, also there is a question of uh, value chain because uh, large language models are produced by a handful of companies at the moment. Uh, some of them are the wealthiest companies of the world. So it just made sense to put uh, some rules also at the origin of um, at the source, rather than just uh, putting all the obligations on the downstream providers, which could be, uh, you know, an SME uh, using ChatGPT and adapting it for its own uh, purpose. Okay. So that's, that's in a nutshell. Okay, interesting. So, as I understand it, it's a risk-based analysis. There are some kinds of AI that are simply so risky. You mentioned the social scoring as an example, that they're just unacceptable and they're banned. Others that are viewed as high risk. And so, there's an assortment of rules that are associated if you are designated as a high-risk high system. And now we've got this additional, in effect, category that's focused on on this emergence of generative AI. Um, is that is that 
roughly how the EU is trying to approach this emergence of, of AI essentially as a consumer product, as you indicated? Yes, that's correct. And then, of course, there are products that are low risk, like, uh, say, your uh, spam filter in your mailbox, and basically there are no rules for those. Okay, interesting. Now, you mentioned that this, this that necessarily involves some of the wealthiest companies in the world. I think that's quite true. Many of them are, of course, U.S. companies. How did they respond to what was taking place? We, we've just seen in Canada active engagement from some of those companies, active lobbying on, on several bills, on streaming, on news. What was their engagement when it came to AI regulation in Europe? Well, you know, um, it's quite common to see private companies, profit-driven companies, to say one thing publicly and another thing privately. So, you know, we have seen a hearing in the U.S. Congress of uh, CEOs of these uh, AI startups saying, please do regulate us. We need the legal certainty and so on. And then when you look at, at for example, the, the position uh, that OpenAI shared with the commission, uh, they said exactly the opposite. Do not regulate us. You don't understand this technology. You are just going to hamper innovation and so on. So uh, the thing in Brussels is that uh, there is a very anti-big tech sentiment that has been growing probably ever since the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, and so, you know, every time a big tech company says something, they take it with more than a pinch of salt. Uh, what we have seen for uh, regarding... Um, the foundation models uh, is that uh, there was active lobbying from European startups that actually did the job uh, for big tech. So big tech didn't have to lift a finger because European companies were doing the, the, the work for them. Uh, these are companies like Mistral AI, Aleph Alpha, that are very closely linked uh, with their um, with the government of their country, so France and Germany, and that pushed uh, for a much uh, more uh, light touch approach to foundation models. Um, the the rules for these uh, models were uh, watered down uh, at the end, but they are still covered. So the, there will be mostly transparency rules for them. Interesting. Can you can you expand a bit on that? So it's interesting. So. It was European companies that that had concerns or expressed concerns about the prospect of what they would see as overregulation and found themselves essentially in alignment with some of the larger U.S. players. What what was being proposed when it came to some of those kinds of technologies and where did they end up landing? So um, the idea here was that basically Europe... the as still a fighting chance for what concerns foundation models. Indeed, these are quite promising AI startups that are raising millions. And uh, the argument was that, well, basically, if you want to shape a technology, it's much uh, better to be the one that develops it that, than the one that uh, regulates it. And I mean, there is some sense in that argument, uh, but it's not that innovation and regulation are uh, you know necessarily uh, incompatible. Um, so what France and Germany proposed was uh, essentially self-regulation. So 
codes of uh, conduct that uh, could at a later stage lead to uh, some uh, hard rules. Um, this was politically not acceptable uh, for uh, the European Parliament in particular that pushed for hard rules for these uh, models from the start. And at the end, you know, there are quite basic obligations for these models, like in terms of transparency, show us the data you use to train your model, show us how much energy you use to train your model. Uh, you have to make sure that the model is, you know, uh, cyber secure and so on. So it, 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 at the end, it's quite basic rules. Uh, still, you know, these startups uh, were making a fuss saying, you know, they, they, they would uh, be on a back foot to compete with big tech. Um, but that's where we landed. Yeah, the Citroen, you mentioned both France and Germany. You know, is that is that roughly how things uh, broke down with France and Germany opposing, particularly in this area, stronger rules preferring the kinds of codes and that you, that you've just suggested where there are other countries who are actively engaged and if you can you know from afar i'm certainly accustomed to thinking of france as being one of the most aggressive when it comes to regulating in the technology space it's kind of it's surprising to hear that it found itself on the opposite side when it came to this issue well it's easy to regulate when it's not your companies that are concerned right and um, indeed i would agree with your assessment that france uh, is usually quite aggressive so it was a bit uh, you know uh, there was also a discussion whether this uh, position was opportunistic. Uh, for what concerns uh, Germany, we should distinguish. Germany is a complicated country. They have a coalition government and some ministry are more pro-business. Uh, some are more uh, pro-consumer protection. So at the end, uh, pretty much they unknown each other. Italy was brought on board, uh, but this was more part of uh, G7 discussions on, on AI and industrial cooperation. Since Italy doesn't have a national champion or a strong AI startup, it was also not worth uh, the risk of, uh, you know, uh, uh, just uh, blocking the, the whole agreement. So at the end, it was pretty much France uh, looking for enough allies to block everything, and they didn't manage. Interesting. I mean, is there yeah, it, your your point that it, it's easier to take a hardline pro-regulation approach when you're regulating other countries? companies or other country other countries coming out of these issues is is well taken you know were there were there some european countries that have made or have advanced significantly when it comes to ai but yet still found themselves on a on a pro regulation approach or did it really break down those that have who see themselves as potential global leaders were somewhat reticent to move forward with with some of these rules and and those that are so essentially, price takers, the consumer perspectives were the ones that won out. Well, you know, um, France and Germany are certainly the countries that in Italy have enough. Uh, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Um, France and Germany are certainly the countries that have uh, an internal market that is large enough to uh, create some national champions that can compete uh, at the international level. Uh, 
uh, they both have uh, an active industrial policy. So it's really not surprising to see a lot of startups emerging from these two countries. Then, of course, there are uh, other um, digital front runners in the EU, like Estonia, you know, home of Skype, of Bolt. Um, uh, you have Ireland that owes uh, a lot of uh, big tech companies uh, headquarters, European headquarters. So, you know, of course, there were other voices uh, in this debate, but I would say, yeah, France and Germany were the strongest. Okay, thanks for that. Now, in December, for anyone who was kind of watching this from the outside, there was, there was this deep debate around what was called the trilogue process, questions about deadlines. Was it going to happen? Wasn't going to happen? I must admit, I found it all a bit confusing as to the, these efforts trying to strike a deal. Can, can you explain a little bit what was taking place at that time and then what ultimately led to a deal? Yeah, sure. I suppose not many people are familiar with uh, EU jargon. Uh, so, a trilogue is essentially the three uh, main EU institutions, so the European Commission, which is the executive branch, and the European Parliament and the Europe and the EU Council, so which are the co-legislators. So um, the European Parliament is uh, made up of directly elected uh, MEPs, and the EU Council is made up of European governments. So um, the, there was significant political pressure to reach an agreement in December. Why? Because we have uh, elections in June, which basically means that the time to uh, adopt and pass legislation was now. So there was technically not enough time to uh, continue the discussions uh, in, in January because already with the agreement in December, they only finished the um, fine-tuning of the text now. So it took, it took uh, more than one month. Um, so, uh, you know, there was, uh, I, won't, I won't bother you with all the uh, internal dynamics, but there was uh, strong pressure uh, to finish this uh, from the commission, because of course, this is their proposal. Um, politicians need a victory uh, uh, to campaign on. So everyone had um, an interest in uh, in finishing this except perhaps the countries i mentioned before that had an interest in derailing the whole process okay now now you mentioned that it's taken about a month to to come together with the text as we record this you've just leaked the final version which i think clocks in at nearly 900 pages can i ask why was there a, a need for a leak you know what is this process supposed to look like in the aftermath of the the agreement that was reached to the end of last year well you know um of course there there are so uh, formal steps uh for uh, passing a law uh one of these is for uh the approval at uh, ambassador level in the eu council and this is planned for the 2nd of february and I mean, as a journalist, uh, my job is to deliver news uh, as soon as possible before, you know, before a document is made public. I try to obtain it before uh, and publish it if I can. So, you know, it would have 
being published eventually, but like these people have more time to look at it. Okay. No, I think it was great. It was great that you're able to put it out in the public space that way. Uh, can you discuss a, a little bit what does come next? You, you mentioned the, amb the EU ambassadors meeting in, in February. I can recall about a decade ago being quite involved in the ACTA discussions around the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement, which all led up to a vote at the European Parliament. It was uh, like in early July where uh, they ultimately voted it down and, and said that the EU wasn't going to jo join on to that. Uh, what 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 further approvals are needed for for this document before it actually passes becomes comes law? Yeah. So uh, just to clarify, um, once the EU ambassadors adopt the text, it cannot change anymore. So uh, there might still be some tweaks on the text that I shared uh, publicly, uh, but once the uh, ambassadors adopt it, it will be, uh, it won't be changed anymore. Following that, uh, indeed, there is the plenary at the European Parliament that needs to um, approve it. And following that, uh, it will be at ministerial level. So European uh, ministries uh, representing their governments will have to adopt it. Then it will be published on the official journal. And usually it takes 21 days uh, for it to come into force. Then the timeline, it's quite um, segmented. Uh, we have, uh, since they enter into force, uh, the bans that I mentioned will enter into application. They will start to apply. Then uh, we have uh, one year for uh, the obligations on foundation models, and then two years for the rest. So it will take quite some time. It will be in the first, probably in the first half of 2026, that the whole of the entire of the AI Act will enter into application. Okay, so it's going to take some time before it takes full effect. Um, you know, as as a conclusion, uh, particularly given the Canadian debate, the debate we see in a lot of countries, uh, there's no question that EU leadership on a range of areas, the GDPR, of course, being, I think, probably the most prominent, but more recently, the DSA, the DMA, has had, had significant influence on the policy debates around digital-related issues in countries around the world. You know, to what extent was some of the urgency around the AI Act fueled by the sense of a genuine need to go ahead and regulate. You mentioned they were they were ahead of the game compared to many others. And, and how much of this is a desire to, do you think, create or be a leader when it comes to establishing global models for regulation, including AI, that others might follow? Well, you know, Brussels is a legislative machine. Um, uh, th there is a strong inertia from the EU institution to produce more and more laws. Uh, I think that as far as the digital space uh, goes, uh, the EU has been rather successful in uh, play, uh, establishing itself as the digital regulator. Um, I think if the GDPR success is to continue uh, and to expand to the AI area, uh, the EU will have to show that it means business in terms of um, enforcing these laws and not just uh, moving the post with new ones. Um, 
Indeed, there is also a sense uh, of uh, we, we are leading the way uh, and setting the international benchmark. Um, and it's not only that. I mean, yeah, indeed, uh, Canada is looking at the EU and probably other jurisdictions will too. Uh, uh, there is also the uh, so-called Brussels effect. So what will happen when, um, you know, AI providers have to comply with the AI Act? Will they uh, create uh, different uh, applications for the European market uh, as opposed to other markets? Or will they keep the same standard for, for everyone? Um, I think this uh, this is a key question, and if we see more and more jurisdiction like the Canadian one uh, passing similar laws, um, then I think it's it's fair to think that uh, we will see uh, this as the new international standard. So I hope that answered your question. I, I, it does, and and I think you're right that. That in many ways, there's obviously a lot of momentum around AI regulation, and in some ways, the this particular piece of legislation has has a has a real likelihood of having significant amount of influence. Of course, not just within the EU in terms of operations there, but the way that many other jurisdictions look at it. Uh, Luca, you've been you've been at the forefront in trying to ensure that people understand and can follow what's taking place, and I'm grateful for that work and grateful for you taking the time to join me on the podcast to help break it down here today. My pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.